All right, we are back. Uh, before we leave the political realm on today's program, I would like to note that the mainstream media is now remarkably covering a lot of the items that you, you know, pretty much had to go to alternative websites, alternative media sites to get proper coverage of. For example, ABC News has a headline, Electronic Voting Machines Could Skew Elections. Duh. Subtitle. Researchers, comma, candidates have little confidence in machines designed to make elections easier to call. This is in conjunction with the story about Cheryl Kagan, the former Maryland Democratic legislator, who opened her mail last week and discovered three computer disks with anonymous letters saying the disks contained the secret source code for vote counting that could be used to alter the votes cast through Maryland's new electronic voting machines. Brad Friedman's been all over this Maryland story for, for months. We, we've talked about uh, it and other items in the news. And, uh, well, better late than never. I'm glad that the media is finally paying attention, although, uh, of course, Brad and others worry that, you know, it may be too late to do anything about it now. One race we're going to concentrate on on next week's program is uh, the Deborah Bowen versus Bruce McPherson race for Secretary of State. I was watching uh, Sacramento Access Television uh, a few nights back, and this woman came on, and I, I didn't recognize her, but she was just talking about electronic voting machines and was just absolutely spot on the money. She was raising all of the concerns, explaining why it is we all should be concerned about this and what needed to be done. Turned out, it's Deborah Bowen. We're going to see if we can find out from our friends over at uh, Sacramento Access, uh, you know, where you might be able to, to view that or when it's going to air again, because I think it was well worth watching. And they did a fabulous job, again, showing you what, uh, what uh, you know, local media can do. You can find a lot of exciting things on Access Television in Davis and in Sacramento, and of course, uh, with things like Access Radio in Sacramento or Catered here in Davis, 101.5 FM. Our obituary on this week's program is that, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Gillo Pontecorvo. Mr. Pontecorvo was the Italian director of the cinematic classic The Battle of Algiers. This film was loosely based on um, uh, the book by Saudi Yassef, who had been a leader in the Algerian struggle for independence from France. Yasef hoped for a film that would be pure propaganda, but Pontecorvo held out for a vision that explored both sides of the uprising of a guerrilla army in the Kasbah from 1954 to 1960. The 1966 film opens with a declaration that no newsreel footage was used, yet Pontecorvo's use of a jittery handheld camera, his casting of both professional actors and locals, and a horrific scene depicting a bomb exploding in a cafe powerfully evoked news coverage of the unending cycle in the Algerian uprising and suppression by the French army. The film went on to win several awards but was banned in France for five years. It became a particular favorite among radical groups such as the Black Panthers. In 2003, the Pentagon used it as a primer on terrorism because of the numerous analogies to the situation in Iraq. I, I bought a copy of uh, The Battle of Algiers last year, and about six months ago we had movie night at the house, and I gotta tell you, everybody was stunned by this motion picture. 
Uh, we all agreed it was easy to see why this film is widely regarded as a masterpiece, and if you've never taken it in, I would suggest at some point that you do so. And speaking of conflict, we, we uh, can't uh, leave today's program without mentioning the fact that that study in The Lancet estimating that there's been 650,000 Iraqis killed by the war in Iraq has come under political attack, but physicians... Um, People who are familiar with the methodology are saying that, uh, you know, it, it does hold up. The study's authors concluded that, uh, the, conceded that the true figure might be as low as 400,000. But um, when in 2004, Johns Hopkins University estimated the death toll at 100,000, that was criticized as being far too high. It now appears that number was far too low. On the Insight program where I talked to Daniel Ellsberg, uh, Dr. Harry Wong, the Physicians for Social Responsibility, the Sacramento chapter, came and talked about that. He agreed with the essay written by another member of the Physicians for Social Responsibility, uh, a doctor with the Los Angeles uh, division of PSR. And uh, we, would, uh, we would refer you to the web, again, to look at that and judge for yourself. Even if that estimate is far too high, let's say it's seven times higher than reality, that the number really is more like 100,000. In a nation of 16 million people, that's, that's the equivalent of like a million Americans being killed in a conflict. Keep in mind that in World War II, we only lost, well, only, but it's not the way to put it, but in America, we suffered the loss of almost a half a million lives. That was World War II. Those, of course, are almost all military losses. Uh, this In Iraq, we're talking about the civilian population, and it's a terrible, terrible number. At any rate, we would suggest that you go on the web and, uh, and check out the Lancet study and what's being said about it. And we'd like to thank uh, Gary Chu for sending us uh, an item about, uh, well, something that's not getting a great deal of press. But let me quote from an article in the Toronto Star. Washington, U.S. President George W. Bush has quietly signed a new national space policy that asserts his country's right to deny access to space to anyone, quote, hostile to U.S. interests, unquote. The policy also rejects future arms control agreements that might limit U.S. flexibility in space. The Bush administration bluntly denied that revisions were a prelude to introducing weapons systems into orbit. Said a senior administration official, this policy is not about developing or deploying weapons in space, period. Of course, the fact that that senior administration official asked to remain unnamed can't be reassuring. Uh, nor should we be uh, reassured by the fact that the document, the first revision of U.S. space policy in nearly 10 years, was signed by Bush more than a month ago, but was not publicly announced. Said the New York Times, the Bush administration has adopted a jingoistic and downright belligerent tone towards space operations. And in the editorial that Gary forwarded me from Bill Nye, the science guy who is affiliated with the Planetary Society, said Dr. Bill Nye, yesterday the United States government established new laws for its, quote, space policy, unquote. It declares that the U.S. has the self-proclaimed right to deny access to space to anyone it the U.S. government, feels is hostile. Yikes. My fellow Planetary Society members, this is on one level asking for trouble. On another level, it's creepy. On yet another level, 
it's just weird. To couch it in diplomatic terms, it's disturbing and a cause for concern. Said Nye, this, uh, this sort of attitude is based on the idea that someone out there is constructing killer satellites. And the governments are planning to put these devices in orbit so they can, at a moment's notice, destroy U.S. spacecraft. Said Nye, I, for one, am very, very skeptical of such claims. Very skeptical. I don't think other governments have any such things. Look at all the trouble the U.S. went to to verify that North Korea set off something that produced radioactivity. Putting rockets in space is hard to do and remain unnoticed. Now he goes on to note that the anti-ballistic missile, ABM Treaty, was signed in 1973 in recognition of this fundamental fact. If you shoot down 99% of the incoming nuclear missiles, you still lose. One warhead landing in New York or Moscow, Beijing or Pyongyang, and it's, as we say these days, game over. Everyone could see that 33 years ago, said Nye, and it's still true. Is it possible that we have people in the U.S. government who don't know this? Daniel Ellsberg, of course, uh, asked much the same question uh, on Friday night, and uh, I, I have a feeling that the answer uh, to both men's question is yes. From outside the halls of power, it looks like contractors who want to continue to develop dead-end, never-to-become-useful systems have bent enough ears in our government to get their representatives to support huge spending. So, we'll lose more revenues, more time, and cause more unease in the world out of some kind of baseless paranoia. It's creepy. All right, we've got about three minutes left, so let's come up with some good news for today's program. And we do have a little bit. New Scientist magazine notes that, uh, this is an incredible story, the Chinese have now decided to raise bears in farms. Not for meat, but for their bile. Someone's figured out that you can <laughs> that you can keep a bear alive in a cage and extract the bile out of it for use in traditional Chinese medicines. And the Chinese, of course, <laughs> learning the ways of the Westerners, have found new ways to market the product. They're now even starting to include it in some shampoos. But according to a Huang Haikui, a government official responsible for enforcing the rules of uh, the conservation treaty, uh, in effect regulating uh, raising bears in, in farms, they've got a new pain-free technique for extracting bile. So I guess this is going to save the life of a lot of bears and, uh, well, you know, more power to them. And also from New Scientist, we have the following. For once, there's some good news from Africa. Farmers are reclaiming the desert, turning the barren wastelands of the Salel region on the Sahara's southern edge into green, productive farmland. Satellite images taken this year and 20 years ago show that the desert is in retreat thanks to a resurgence of trees. Wherever the trees grow, farming can resume. Tree planting has led to the regreening of as much as 3 million hectares of land in Niger, enabling some 250,000 hectares to be farmed again. The land became barren in the 1970s and early 80s through poor management and felling of trees for firewood. But since the mid-1980s, farmers in parts of Niger have been protecting them instead of chopping them down. And of course, vegetation creates climactic feedback loops, which increases the amount of rainfall, and it's just, it's all to the good. All right, and our final item in the program, I think I just want to just quickly blow through this. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago in the program we were going to talk about America's two gay presidents. 
First one we talked about was James Buchanan. The second one I said was someone familiar to all, but uh, the case has not been definitively made for. Well, we're just going to throw it out there. We would just like to note for the record that our 37th president, Richard M. Nixon, spent an awful lot of time during his presidency. It's estimated that uh, at least 10% of his days were spent in the company of one Charles B.B. Rebozo, a Miami Cuban. Anyone who recalls the Nixon presidency will uh, no doubt remember uh, the amount of time our chief executive spent out on the presidential yacht uh, cruising around with B.B. And yes, that was Dick and B.B. without Pat Nixon. We admit this proves nothing. We cannot, we cannot by any means prove our case that uh, the 37th president may have been bisexual. But we would note that there are strong cases that have been made for some of his political patrons. Nixon's career was advanced immensely by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, which uh, posterity does now recognize as having been in a homosexual relationship with FBI number two man Clyde Tolson. I know that will upset people if the FBI even suggest this, uh, makes them bristle, but the record seems pretty clear on this. And we could say more about this, but we are flat out of time. So we'll, we'll return to this subject, I promise, uh, a month from now, more or less. But uh, we've got to close it up today. We would like to thank Bob Petrakis for talking with us, along with Jeff Kravitz. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. <laughs>